Chris, you just got rit rolled. That was not the right button, but we're going to go with it, man. Got me. <laughs> Good day. Welcome to Theology in the Dirt. We want to practice our theology in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. We record Theology in the Dirt from Global Impact Restoration Rome. We work to address the foster care and adoption crisis in Northwest Georgia, the state of Georgia, the southeast, and the world as we practice our theology in the public square. You can check out Restoration Rome by going to restorationrome.org. My name is Mitchell Jolly. And I am the Chris Hayes. You are the Chris Hayes. Let's get some news. Well, Chris, today in my headlines, uh, clashes continued along the Israel, Lebanon border, Israel, Israel, Israel. I, I just messed that up. Or in a couple of months, it'll be Israel. It will be Israel. That's <laughs> very true. Clashes continued on the Israel-Lebanon border over the weekend with the Times of Israel reporting that six Israeli soldiers, 19 Hezbollah terrorists, and six Palestinian terrorists have been killed in the exchanges of missiles and artillery fire in recent weeks. Sheikh Naim Qasim, Hezbollah's deputy leader, said Saturday that the group will escalate its attacks whenever Israel begins a ground operation in Gaza, while Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned Lebanon against further attacks. He said if Hezbollah decides to enter the war, it will miss the second Lebanon war. Wow. We'll cripple it with a force it cannot even imagine, and the consequences for it in the Lebanese state are devastating. United States military officials moved to strengthen American forces in the Middle East over the weekend, shifting an additional carrier strike group, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, into the region and deploying an additional missile and air defense systems. The Eisenhower was originally set to join the USS Gerald R. Ford carrier strike group in the eastern Mediterranean, but will now be deployed to the Central Command Area of Responsibility, which includes the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. These steps will bolster regional deterrence efforts, increase force protection for U.S. forces in the region, and assist the defense of Israel, Defense Secretary Lord Austin said in a press release on Saturday. Hamas on Friday released two U.S. citizens, a mother and her 17-year-old daughter, who were being held hostage in Gaza. The release came amid negotiations between Hamas and Qatar, a nation that maintains both friendly relations with the U.S., and lines of communication with communication with terror groups leaders. Israel declared it will destroy Hamas regardless of the hostage situation as the IDF readies a potential ground offensive, but progress in negotiations could delay the start of that operation. And my final piece of news, Representative Jim Jordan ended his bid to become Speaker of the House on Friday after he lost a third consecutive vote on the House floor in a subsequent secret ballot vote within the GOP conference on whether to keep him as the party's nominee for the post. Nine candidates announced bids for the position before the conference deadline yesterday, including House Majority Whip Tom Emer, Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, Representative Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, and Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy threw his support behind Emer, uh, the Minnesota Republican, but didn't rule out his own return to the Speaker's chair. I'm supporting Tom Emer, he said, but I'm going to tell you, I'm still a member of Congress, and I'm going to lead in any capacity to protect America. The Republican Conference will hold a candidate forum tonight at 6.30 p.m. ahead of an expected conference vote tomorrow. Wow, that's a lot. Yep. Brought to you by the dispatch. <laughs> a lot happening there. Um, yeah. I went with the sports headline this week because I just I find the story fascinating in college football world, and I know that you like college football, so you'll Indeed. appreciate this. So the Iowa Hawkeyes have a really interesting contract situation with one of their staff members this year. Their offensive coordinator, Brian Ferentz, who is also the son of longtime 
head coach at Iowa, Kirk Ferentz. Kirk, okay. Yeah. Um, he's been the uh, – so Brian has been the OC there at Iowa since 2017, offensive coordinator. And while off, Iowa often has great defenses, their offense has been quite bad for a while. So amongst growing angst towards their OC and towards their offense, a stipulation was put into his contract for this year. Number one, they took $50,000 out of his contract for this year. And they put the stipulation that he has to average – 25 points a game to keep his job. Wow. Now, they didn't say – it doesn't have to just be offense. It could be defense, special teams. Just to have to – the team has to average 25 points per game. Okay. Um, so, for context, last year they ranked 123rd in the FBS by averaging just 17 points per game. And that included six defensive touchdowns and a couple of safeties, I believe. So, he okay. got they got some help just to get to 17. Wow. Again, currently Iowa is 6-2 and two on the year, and their point totals to- so far, 24-20-41-0, 26-20-15-10. Granted, Saturday they should have 17, and a horrendous call I on a punt that. return touchdown got called back. So, But I don't think that's going to matter right. come contract time. So, over eight games, they're averaging just 19.5 points a game, just barely above last year. They have four regular season games left. All games they should win. They, they, they're, they'll be highly favored in those games. But Ferentz will need to average 36 points per game those last four to get to an average of 25 for the regular season, um, so, which seems like a tall task considering they've only scored more than 26 points once all season. That's tough. And you throw in the fact that the head coach may have to fire his son because they can't score, but they're never going to compete with the Ohio States or the Michigans yeah. or the Penn States if you can't score points. And that that one that they scored zero was a thirty-one to zero whooping by Penn State. Oh wow! So something I just think yeah. that's interesting that they put that in the contract. But I mean, if you're the offensive coordinator and you haven't done well, you right. probably should have to score twenty-five. Not really a lot of points in today's game. No, not for a big program. Not with the rules favoring the offense. You know, you shouldn't be able, of course. Recruiting matters if you have trouble recruiting to Iowa True. Uh, out of that conference. Well, that's, I imagine that is a little bit of a challenge. Um, man, it's, it's, tall, it's a tall task. It's a tall task, so we'll see what happens there. Yeah, but Iowa's not Ohio State, right? It's kind of hard to sell people in Iowa when Ohio State's going. Right. <laughs> that's true. However, you know, it's all about getting your opportunity also. You it know, is. If Ohio State doesn't recruit you and Ohio does, you say, hey, Let's go beat those suckers. Well, it's not like Ohio is is Southern California though either. No. For, so it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's a no. fact. That's right. I mean, so Ohio like, is not Georgia. There I are mean, athletes everywhere. You just they just right. got to be better. You got to recruit better players. You really do. That's right. That's a good piece of news, man. I'm ho- I'm glad you didn't bring up Desmond Ritter. <laughs> How about one. let's get down in the dirt, ladies and gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? It's time for the final countdown. The show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Indeed, let's rock. Um, is voice woke? Because did you just notice? I can't believe I've just maybe maybe he's just off today. But uh, he said, "Ladies and gentlemen, 
not gentle men. Like, is he like against multiple men listening to this show? I mean, is he that woke? You know, it's possible. We may have to have a conversation with <laughs> Voice. We may have to have a conversation with Voice. He's gone woke. Go woke, go broke. <laughs> and get fired from Theology in the Dirt. Yeah. Don't be a joke and go woke. <laughs> Don't be a joke and go woke. Well, today um, we uh, are going to, in light of a lot of the news I shared and a lot of stuff going on in the world, we talked about um, talking about Israel. Mm-hmm. So today we're we're going to, we're going to talk about Israel. So um, this is a complicated topic. This is not super easy um, because there are theological questions, there are historical questions, there are all kinds of questions. Like, yeah. is, is, uh, is is the church the new Israel? Uh is um, is there is there a component of national uh, genetic descendants of Abraham still being in the redemptive plan of God? Um, how does that play in to the inclusion of Gentiles and all other nations into the saving work of Jesus? Um, what does that mean for the political machine? Like, is political Israel different from the genetic descent of Israel? And that's a lot of questions. I'm not even sure we can answer all of those, but they are legitimate questions. Yeah. Um, the Bible says some things uh, regarding that. We're going to read a couple of passages of Scripture and and try to try to try to understand. I, I, I do. I want to caution ourselves, caution others about. Um, being too clean in your understanding of, of this. I think there's some very, very clear things we have to uphold as Christians from our Bible. And I think there are some difficult questions to answer. And we've got to be okay with going, man, I'm not real sure I know. And yeah. so I'm going to start by doing, shut me up. Like if it's like it's too long, but I want to do a history because I think one of the questions people uh, talk about is is uh, one of the questions to get at gets asked is well what what about Palestine like why is that area why is the land called Palestine and Palestinians and and Israel and what about Judea like why is it called Palestine that's a great question so right. what I want to do is kind of run down a kind of a, a biblical and historical mashup so what is a what do we get biblically and and historically what has happened in that that part of the world. And, and this stuff's not hard to find. You can go and Google, uh, you can find, um, and there, there are pages, government pages, Israel's page, Palestinian authorities page. There are all kind of pages that have a historical timeline and there are dates that are just undisputable. Right. So I'm going to give you some dates. Um, okay. We're going to start in the, uh, modern, uh, we would say BC, but modern history says BCE before common era. So whatever you want to use there. So the 17th century, uh, BC, you got the time that's roughly around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have the patriarchs of uh, the Old Testament, all right? And so these people uh, are bearers of belief in monotheism, particularly the belief in Yahweh, the Lord who revealed himself. They settle uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, famine forces them then to migrate to Egypt. And so we move up to the 13th century BC. Uh, depending on how you date the Exodus, you might have a 13th century, uh, which would be your 1200s, um, I'm sorry, your, your 1400s, and, and, and then you have other, uh, other views of the Exodus that takes place at a different time, but we're going to say 13th century, and that's arguable. You got the Exodus from Egypt. Moses leads Israel uh, from Egypt, followed by 40 years of wandering in the desert. Uh, you get the, the Ten Commandments. You have the covenant at Sinai. All that happens in that time period. Then you got the 13th to the 12th centuries, and the Israelites then settle in the land 
of Israel. So you've got the conquest of Canaan, uh, Joshua's leadership over over the conquest of Canaan. And then you got around 1020 BC, the Jewish monarchy is established, Saul's first king. Then um, then you're around a thousand, Jerusalem is made the capital of David's kingdom. Uh, around 960 BC, the first temple and the national spiritual center of the Jewish people built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. Um, then you have around 930, divide, the divided kingdom, Rehoboam, uh, comes along uh, after David. And in a foolish decision, you have the division of the kingdom. And so you have the 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes. Um, and then you got 722 to 720 BC, the Assyrian conquest of the northern 10 tribes. Uh, some people call those the 10 lost tribes. And Judah and Benjamin are left in the south. Around 586 BC, Judah is conquered by Babylon. Um, and the first temple is destroyed, and most Jews are exiled. Then that enters what's called the second temple period. So that's around 538 to 142. So around 538 to 515, um, you have the uh, Jews returning from Babylon. That's the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, around 332 B.C., the land is conquered then by Alexander the Great. That sets up Hellenistic rule. Hellenistic is a fancy word for the Greekification of, of all things. Um, 166 to 160, the Maccabean or the Hasmonean revolt against the restrictions on practice of Judaism. Um, Judas, Maccabeus, the hammer, uh, revolting against Antiochus Epiphanes. It's fascinating stories. The Maccabees are great are great read and some intertestamental stuff. Some amazing dudes. 142 to 129, Jewish autonomy is established under the Hasmoneans. Uh, 129 to 163, Jewish independence is held under Hasmonean monarchy. And then 63 B.C., Jerusalem's captured by Rome. A Roman general Pompey comes in and does his Roman thing. And then from around 63 B.C. to 313 A.D. is the Roman section of rule over this period of land. This is where it gets super interesting. All of it's super interesting, but from 64 um, B.C. to 4 B.C., Herod who's a Roman vassal king. Now, Herod's Jewish, and he is a vassal, so he is ruled over by Rome and rules for Rome in a place where ethnically he fits. Um, and so that's the time of Herod. Um, and then there's the temple in, the, in Jerusalem is refurbished during that time. And then we move to 20 to 33 A.D., um, or common area, the ministry of Jesus. Um, you get 66 A.D., Jewish revolt against the Romans. And then in 70 A.D., there's the destruction of Jerusalem and destruction of the Second Temple. 73 A.D. is the last stand of the Jewish folks at the uh, desert fortress of Masada. And then you have, this is where this gets really interesting, where you where we talk about the renaming of the land. Uh, 132 to 135 uh, is the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, against Rome. And the Roman emperor Hadrian, uh, who crushed the revolt, renamed the land Syria-Palestina. And from that renaming, his intent was to remove any reference to Judea. And so the title of the land, Syria-Palestina, by Emperor Hadrian, is where that name comes from. Now, if anybody has any contradictory historical information, by all means share it. I'd love to learn. No. But that's from from my from my looking and digging. That's what I came 
to understand. And then around 210 AD, you got the codification of the Jewish oral law, which is called the Mishnah, is completed about that time. And then you move up to a time of foreign domination, around 313 to 636 AD, and that uh, that begins with the Byzantine rule. And so um, the Byzantine rule happens but uh, around uh, 390 AD. Um and then around 614 A.D., there's a Persian invasion of the land. Uh, from 636 down to uh, or up to uh, around 1099 A.D. Uh, is what is called the Arab rule. So in 691, uh, on site of First and Second Temple Judaism, uh, there is the rule of uh, Arab nations. Uh, the Dome of the Rock was built by Caliph uh Abd el Malik, uh, and then in 1099 to 1291 is the period of Crusader domination. That's the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. So you read about the Crusaders, Knights Templar, some fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that period of time. Then around 1291 to 1516 is, is the Mamluk rule. Mamluk uh, were slave um, slaves who 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 gained a kingship and and ruled over that time. Uh, then 517 to 1917 is the Ottoman rule. And so in 517, the Ottoman Empire begins a rule over that region. Um, and uh, in 1564, the Code of Jewish Law was published. In 1860, uh, the first neighborhood built outside the walls of Jerusalem's old city happened. Uh, in 1882, uh to 1903, the first Aliyah, uh, and the Aliyah was a large-scale immigration. So it's the first Aliyah in 1882 to 1903, mainly from Russia, of Jews moving back to mm-hmm. that land. In 1897 was the first Zionist Congress convened by Theodore Herzl in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, the Zionist organization was founded in 1897. 1904 to 1914 was the second Aliyah mainly from Russia and Poland. 1909 was the first kibbutz uh, neighborhood was established, Dagania, and it's and I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, and its first all-Jewish city, Tel Aviv, was founded in 1909. Then 1917, the 400 years of Ottoman rule ended by British conquest. And so in 1917, the British came and took over the land. And the British foreign minister, Balfour, pledges support for establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And so from 1918 to 1948 is the period of British rule. And then in 1919 to 1923 was the third aliyah, mainly from Russia, more Jews moving back. In 1920, uh, Histadrut, uh, General Federation of Labor, and Haganah, Jewish Defense Organization, is founded. Uh, Vad Liumi, National Council set up by Jewish community, and Yeshuv to conduct its affairs. In 1921, the first Moshav cooperative village, uh, Nahalal, was founded. In 1922, Britain granted a mandate for Palestine, that is the land of Israel, by the League of Nations. The Transjordan set up three-fourths of the area, leaving one-fourth for the Jewish national home. The Jewish agency representing Jewish community uh, and Jewish mandate authorities is set up in 1924. Uh, Technion, the first institute of technology, was founded in Haifa. In 1924 to 32, the fourth Aliyah, mainly from Poland, more People coming back. 1925, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem opened on Mount Scopus. In 1929, Hebron Jews are massacred by Arab terrorists. In 1931, Etzel, the Jewish underground organization, was founded. As a result, in 1933 to 39, the fifth Aliyah, mainly from Germany, people beginning to move back 
And you can tell we're getting to that period of history where things were ramping up right. for the Holocaust. And so the fifth aliyah, mainly from Germany, are coming back. 1936 to uh, 39, anti-Jewish riots instigated by Arab terrorists happened in the region. 1939, Jewish immigration was severely limited by the British, uh, what's called by British White Paper. 1939 to 45 is World War II, the Holocaust in Europe. 1941, Lehigh Underground Movement formed, um, and the Paul Mock Strike Force of Haganah was set up. 1944, the Jewish Brigade formed as part of British forces. In 1947, US, the UN proposes an establishment of an Arab and Jewish state in the land. And then 1948, the end of British rule happened on May 14th, and the state of Israel was proclaimed on that same day, May 14th. And at that point, the next day, May 15, Israel is invaded by five Arab states. Uh, and then there's the establishment of the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, uh, wars of independence from May 1948 to July of 1949. Then 1949 is my last piece of history. The armistice agreements are signed with Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And Jerusalem is divided under Israeli and Jordanian rule. And then the first Knesset, the first parliament, is elected in 1945. 49, and Israel is admitted to the United Nations as its 59th member. So that's where we stand today. Yeah, I uh, man, I learned a lot there too. I did some digging in the history, but not quite in that depth. Although it's hard not to focus on what a cool nickname for a conqueror, the hammer. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, Judas Maccabeus, like, the hammer. Like that's that awesome. just sounds awesome. I just picture like this Thor-looking dude walking in down, and they're like, uh-oh, it's the hammer. And like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If if he had a tattoo, he had this massive hammer just like all over his back. It's massive. comes up. That would be cool. That'd we be don't cool. have any Fault verification shirtless. of that, So, but you can kind of speculate on what that looked like. Um, just a couple of things to add, and I know you got – before you kind of dive into some of the scriptures on um, from a historical standpoint, because conflict in Israel is not new. Like uh, what's happening right now is not new. This has been happening uh, really since the early 1900s, and you covered a lot of, a lot of that uh, through the Zionist uh, Zionism movement. Uh, communal violence began spiraling out of control closer towards that time in the 40s, closer to around the uh, World War II time. So the United Nations actually created a plan in 1947 to split Israel into two nations one for Jews that would remain in Israel and one for Arabs called Palestine. Um, I don't know if you've seen the map for this, but it kind of looks like you picture like a giraffe's neck, like a spots and everything. Like it's, right. I don't know how they drew that out, but you know, right. kind of the, uh, basically what would happen with uh, Jerusalem would, would have remained a special international zone since it was considered holy by both Jews and Muslims. Mm. Uh, now the plan never took place, but basically kind of the, the Gaza strip um, area, which is still, um, Palestine centric right. today was going to be a big part of that. And then of course the Northern area and then some of the, um, the Western zone as well, West bank. Um, and so, but that plan never took place, obviously. And you mentioned the modern state of Israel established in 1948, which really a turning point in the region's history. And that kind of enhanced a lot of the ongoing tensions and conflicts. Israelis won the war in 1948, pushed and the, but they pushed well beyond the proposed areas created by the UN, trying to take over a lot of the land that was inhabited by Palestinians. Mm. This ended up creating about 700,000 refugees, a number today that exceeds 7 million and are mostly still considered refugees right. uh, because of that. The next big conflict came in 1967 when Israel went to war with Arab neighbors to take control of two key areas that I just mentioned. One, Gaza, um, which was mostly under control of Europe, or excuse me, of Egypt at the time, and then the West Bank, which was mostly under the control of Jordan. Mm. Israeli forces controlled the West Bank ever since, but released control of Gaza 
um, which you know, I mean, you now refer to the Gaza Strip back in 2005. Uh, however, they set up a blockade, so many believe that Gaza is more of like an open-air prison than it is a true Arab state or region because they have basically blocked anything coming in, in and out of there. But it is one of the most densely populated areas in the world, actually, that Gaza Strip area. Uh, fast forward to today, and this is just the newest edition of fighting between um, Hamas, which was created in 1987 and is a Palestinian militant group focused on the destruction of Israel. And I know you mentioned some of the numbers earlier, but during this latest round of conflict, it's estimated though about 70% of the deaths so far in this are civilians, are just, are not, they're not military personnel, they're not um, radical um, people or politicians, they're just normal folks trying to go along their day, which is, which is very tragic and sad. And so uh, there's numerous issues and, pr- and problems to c- continue between Israelis and Palis- Palestinians um, trying to figure out what should happen to these Palestinian refugees, whether Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank should stay or they should be removed, whether the two sides should share Jerusalem, which I feel like is, that's, I mean, that's a pretty big deal too, trying to figure out, do we share this? Who does it really belong to? Uh, and then whether a Palestinian state should be created alongside Israel or not. So those are just things that are still trying to be figured out. It doesn't seem like there's going to be yeah. um, anything soon. And I've, I've got some questions in a little while for you because I've just some of it's just my curiosity. Some of it's sure. I think things that our listeners would probably like to to hear on. But I know you've got some um, yeah some good stuff from the biblical standpoint as well. Well, I think um, I think a couple of things that come to mind uh, for me. Number one. Um, we're Christians, and so um, I like I, I don't want to personally I don't want to judge um, any military action on the part of Israel in any fashion um, because if as an American citizen uh, I would just say this, and I hope as a Christian that if uh, that if someone um, decided to come into Rome, Georgia, and do what Hamas did hmm. in Rome, Georgia. Um, my response, my response would likely be very IDF. Personally, I would join whatever group was uh, going to uh, right. um, do whatever needed to be done to make sure that didn't happen again. Um, and so, um, horrible things Hamas has done. Yes. Um, and 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 I will say this: I think uh, the political machine of Israel is distinct from um, Israel. I think we have to draw that line. I think there's a political machine. Um, that is Israel, and I think it is distinct from uh, spiritual Israel, and I think spiritual Israel is possibly distinct from uh, the elect of Israel, <laughs> those who are of the faith of Abraham versus those who are merely physically descended from Abraham. And then I think there's a there's a place in understanding what is the church in regard to Israel. And a lot of that is very complicated, and lines are blurred in the middle of that. And so here's a scripture. I just, two things. No, well, gosh, lots of things. I shouldn't say two things. It's lots, it's lots of things. But this is a scripture that stands out to me. It's Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And so this is massive. And he, and he goes on, Paul goes on to make this incredible argument that just because you're physically descended from Abraham doesn't mean you are Abraham's descendant. And 
and and he makes this argument that it is people it is the people who are of who are of the promise and in particular he makes a very robust argument that Israel is defined by those who have the faith of Abraham not just the physical descent and so there is a reality that and and, and Paul even says this earlier in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision is not what defines Israel Circumcision was given as a sign of the faith that he had before circumcision was ever instigated. So, so faith in the Lord uh, is what really defines the descendants of Abraham. And so, and so then Paul's going to go on and do this incredible thing in Romans chapter eleven. Let me pull it up. Um, it's, I think it's important to. I think it's important to read. Um, Let's just start with Romans 11, 1. He said, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is it? What is God's reply to him? He said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So to at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. All right. So Paul, at the time of this writing, who is an apostle to the Gentiles, so he, he's fighting for Gentile inclusion mm-hmm. into people, in, into the people of faith. Because where, where this thing started is the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the, the Messiah, of the Lord, he is. He claimed to be Yahweh in the flesh, and uh, and and he is the Savior of Israel. And Jesus Himself had a ministry to Gentiles. He had to go through Samaria because the woman at the well, the Samaritan, needed to hear and respond to the gospel. So Jesus even, and he said one of the things that nearly got him thrown off the cliff was when he said, "There will be people from these nations sitting at the table," um, and 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 the Jewish. Leaders didn't like that. No Gentiles included here, and Jesus says, "No, that they will be included here, and because that's the plan." Right. And so, and so, Paul says, "At this present time, though, at the time of this writing, um, this is huge." Um, so, to at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. So, and and contextually, he's speaking about descendants of Abraham. So, there's a remnant. Chosen by grace. Now, what is remnant? Remnant is huge, it's, and, and it's the idea that he just referenced that um, in in the time of Elijah, there was Israel, but a lot of them had bowed the knee to Baal, Baal. But some of them hadn't. Elijah just didn't know who Elijah didn't know who they were, and so there's this remnant of people who are of faith. They believe, and there's a whole bunch of them that don't believe, and so what's happening there is the reality is that. And it's what Paul said in Romans 9. Not everybody who's descended from Abraham are really Abrahams, but it's those who've been faithful. They believed. Mm. And so Paul says at this present time, there's some who've been chosen by grace. And the, the implication is we don't know who they are fully. And so he goes on to verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes it would not see and ears it would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So God spoke that he's, he's going to, and he's going to do, some, there's some bad things. Like they're going to be hardened. And the intent was that there would be Gentiles from the Tower of Babel, non-believers, separated from God, who he would include into that promise he made to Abraham. So, salvation, because of their trespasses, come to the Gentiles. Verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who fall fallen, but kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And that's stark. And even they, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. <laughs> that's awesome so if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more would these the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree okay so there's the root and and i i would have to think and somebody please feel free to disagree with me here like send me an email see me in person but i, I think this the vine is is jesus it's the lord himself and these branches that belong in it because they were chosen by grace have been broken off because of unbelief. They didn't believe. Right. Abraham's grafted in because he believed. And God, in his riches and his divine wisdom and mercy, intended to include Gentiles, so he has included in Gentiles. But they were not, metaphorically, olive branches. But he has grafted them in because he loved them and made them part of the root. So he's telling, Paul's telling these Gentiles, don't get proud. He broke yeah. off people who belong because of unbelief. So you better make sure you keep believing or he'll break you off too. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to keep believing today. And so he says here, but the natural branches, branches he, can, he can graft back in. And then verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you being aware of this mystery, brother. So there's a mystery here. There, there's a mysterious nature to it. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. This is why we have to be careful. There's a mysterious nature here. There's a partial hardening has come upon in. Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Mm. So there's a full number of Gentiles to come in. I don't know what that number is, right. but it's going to be from every nation. We know that. We can go back to, we can go back to uh, Genesis chapter uh, 12. Um, Abraham's called to be a missionary to the nations that were scattered from Babel. And so God intends that representatives from all nations will be grafted in to him. And there's a full number. We don't know who that is, but Paul used this language of election here. So there's a number he's chosen by grace, and they are going to come in. But he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, meaning, like until, until this full number comes in. 
And then verse 26, And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so there are two things that people interpret that to mean right there. One is um, the inclusion of the Gentile into the vine of Christ along with people who are of the faith of Abraham, who are actually descended from Abraham, all together is the Israel of God. And so thus all the Gentiles and all the elect from Abraham will be called the Israel of God. Other people interpret that to mean after the Gentiles come in and then he saves that elect number of descendants of Abraham, um, thus all Israel, meaning descendants of Abraham, will be saved. My hunch, and I could be wrong, I'm just going to open-handed be wrong here, is that what Paul means there is when the elect Gentiles believe and all the elect physical descendants of Abraham believe, thus all Israel, meaning the Israel of the Lord, not the political machine, not mere descendants of Abraham, but those who have the faith of Abraham, Gentile and Jew alike, thus then at that point all the elect will be saved, and that elect is the Israel of God, and that means Gentiles and Jews together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Clear as mud, maybe, but and and then and, and then Paul goes into worship here in just a second. He says, "As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers." That's that's a that's a bold statement. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So so there seems to be this sense in which there is an elect number of descendants, physical descendants of Abraham that have the favor of God on them, and He's going to bring them to faith. He's going to save them. It's right there in the text, right? So. They might be enemies, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of your forefathers. That tells me that it matters what I think about them. And why? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown you, they also may now receive mercy. I just totally misread that. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Wow. So you're disobedient, but you're shown mercy. They're disobedient, they're going to be shown mercy. And he's consigned everybody to disobedience so that when he saves people, it's by his mercy and grace alone. All right? Not because of anything we did. And then verse 33 is where he breaks into worship. Oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him? And to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Romans 11. Yeah. And so to me, when I think Israel... That is the chapter in the Bible that comes to mind. Is you have this root of this good news, the kingdom of God, this salvation that's available in Jesus Christ alone, and descendants of Abraham who believe they're in it, and Gentiles who believe they're in it. And there's some more descendants of Abraham who are going to believe, and there's some more Gentiles to believe. And so for me, what that does is that defines my allegiance. And that allegiance is who's of the faith of Abraham that is rooted into Christ, whether they're Gentile or Jew. And therefore, that's my family. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I, I think there's a distinction, and I, I hesitate to, like, I'm not, mm, mm, mm. 
So are all those elect the church? Yes. Are all those elect the true Israel of God? Yes. Is that distinct from the political machine? I think absolutely. Um, is that distinct from the national identity? I think so. Um, and so my allegiance as a Christian is to the people who are of the faith of Abraham, um, not to the United States of America, not to even the political national machine of Israel, but to the Israel of God, meaning the descendants of Abraham, who I think that land belongs to because God gave it to them. Um, and how they inhabit it is a challenging question because um, we don't have time, at least at this point, you may ask the question and we can go into it. What of the land? Because the land is important. Like you start with Eden. God usually takes down another rabbit hole, but of Eden, I mean, dirt matters to God. And you get this with Naaman. This is fascinating. He yeah. pays attention when Naaman comes to get healed, the prophet. Um, he asks for something. He asks for dirt. You pay attention to that? He asks yeah. for dirt from, from the land because he wants to go back because he has to walk into this temple. He serves this he serves this man who worships a false a false god, and he wants this dirt to be able to go in and don't hold this against me. Don't hold this against me. I I worship Yahweh, but I want to be on his dirt when I walk into this place. So he asked for dirt to take back because the land matters. And so God picked this land as as the place of the new Eden to be cultivated, to launch from, to reach the nations from for Abraham's people. And so God cares about the dirt. And so it's not irrelevant that that dirt is there and that God still has a purpose for that dirt. Right. Um, and so it matters who inhabits the dirt. Um, it, but does the dirt belong to a, a nation of the United Nations or a nation of people who have the faith of Abraham? And I think those, I do think those are different. And I could be 100% wrong. Um, but the question is, how do those people get their dirt? Um, and, and, and maybe it's through that means of the, I mean, God, it gives us a mystery. Maybe it is through the means of the national political machine that the dirt is made available. And somehow the good news of the kingdom invades and takes all of them captive and rescues people from sin. And, and all of us who are of the faith of Abraham find that to be a launching pad of some sort in some manner, in some way. And I could be a hundred percent wrong. I'm in no means a Zionist believing that uh, we have to establish a church on the Mount of Olives, or, or I'm sorry, not the Mount of Olives, on the uh, Temple Mount. We need to get rid of the Dome of the Rock. Um, I think the kingdom of God is bigger than that, but I could be wrong, um, meaning we not, we're not going to, uh, and oh, by the way, um, all the prophecies have been fulfilled. So I know there are two different eschatological machines. There are multiple eschatological machines, but some people say there are still things that need to be fulfilled, and I think, Acts 13, 31, 32, 33 tell us that all the promises of God have been fulfilled in, in the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm, um, I don't think there's anything left to be fulfilled. Right. I think the end has come, um, which is why the Lord said he could come back at any moment. There's no more promises for God to keep, and I don't think God has to establish a church or a, a temple be rebuilt on the Temple Mount for the end to come. I don't think that has to happen because the Bible tells us we are now the temple, 
And that temple is taking up residence all over the world as the gospel of the kingdom expands. So there's no need to build a physical temple. We are the temple. That, right. the, the scriptures are clear about that. And so we don't need a new temple built on the temple mount to see the Lord Jesus return. That's not what he's waiting on. Yeah. He's, he's building temples uh, in human hearts, gathering the local church among every nation. And when the fullness of them has come in, he will save the rest of the descendants of Abraham, and then he will return. Yeah. I said a mouthful with that. I probably should stop talking before I get myself in a hole I can't get out of. <laughs> That's never happened though. Before. Nah. You've never done that. Never done that. Right. Um, no, I think oh, I just think, I think all that's fascinating. I think it's important to talk about you when you were in Romans. It kind of made me think. And before I, before I say this, Bible scholars and pastors, forgive me if this is not true. <laughs> I just it reminded me of Isaiah twenty seven. Start talking about the redemption of Israel. I don't know if there's a correlation there specifically, or if, if Paul's reverting back to that. But for instance, in verse six. Um, it says, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And then goes through some more details there in Isaiah 27 and then ends with, in that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so I guess I don't know if that's there's any intentional correlations there. That's just what it kind of reminded me of, and kind of brought me back to because I, I agree at some point there's going to be yeah. there's still the idea of worship there and coming from wherever people have scattered yeah. back together. And I think there's some relevance and some significance that Jerusalem still kind of remains a holy city to both. Like you think about all the conflicts sure. through the through centuries. Yeah, there really hasn't to my knowledge, been any kind of like overtaking of just that city by one group or the other that has lasted. I know there has been, but yeah. I mean, like, even today, though, there seems to be this agreement, whether it's written or unwritten, yeah. that this place is holy. Because, again, the Muslims think yeah. it's holy and the Jews think it's holy. And Christians and think, Christians it's, think holy. it's holy. Absolutely. And, and and so do people from all over the world. Yeah. No, uh, I, the, Isaiah, like, the, yeah, the, there is there are places, like, and I want to say that, there's no promise of God that needs to be fulfilled. He's fulfilled right. every promise. But there are places in the scriptures that look forward to the full establishment of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Isaiah is full of those examples. Yes. Of the new heaven and the new earth. So there is a there is still coming um, the fulfillment of the forward-looking word of God. And and it, it, Isaiah, Isaiah, the passage you just referenced, is one of them. And as you were reading that, it made me think of Isaiah 19. It's one of my favorite forward looks to the kingdom of God being fully established. Uh, Verse 19 of Isaiah 19, he said, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. He's speaking about Egypt. Mm -hmm. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. I'm going to start crying and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord and will listen to their and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, now this is crazy. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, where does that have to pass through? Israel, right? Yeah. It has to pass through that land, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. 
In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. My Lord. Mm. Now, that all hadn't happened yet. Egypt hadn't believed. Assyria hadn't believed. The people of that of that region up in up in that area, which is referred to as Assyria, and 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 as far as I can tell, there hasn't been a massive national movement to transform all those people. But I don't know that that's a hundred percent metaphorical. That that feels very historically forward looking. That there's going to come a day in the eternal kingdom when the Lord's going to save people in Assyria, Egypt. And Israel, and they're going to be a highway, and they're just going to travel. And they're going to worship together. Now, by gosh, that lets me know the dirt matters somehow, some way, and the kingdom of God is going to invade these peoples, and they're going to believe in Jesus and these Gentiles and these Jews right here in the middle of the earth. And he refers to it being in the middle of the earth. This is some place God has established as a center point. I don't know how all that works metaphysically, but yeah. somehow, hmm. what you read in Isaiah twenty-seven, what we read here, is going to become a reality. And so for us, it, it matters what we think about that dirt and about the people who inhabit it, including the Palestinians. You know, those people of Arab descent um, need to believe the gospel. Right. And, and, not, and not the gospel of Judaism. There is no good news in that. Um, the good news is the good news of Jesus Christ, his eternal reign and rule, and, and he includes Gentiles and Jews in the vine of his very person. And so... The Lord Jesus wants to save Palestinians and Jews, you know, yeah. and 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 somehow for them all, Assyrians and Egyptians to inhabit the middle of the earth, which happens to be right there. Which I just wonder. I wonder if that's why Tolkien named that piece of dirt Middle Earth. Yeah, I don't know that he did, but I just that just entered my mind. Like, but it oh, sounds oh. good. It sounds good. <laughs> if not, we're gonna go with it. Frodo, you, <laughs> could use your help. <laughs> if Frodo, help us. Just kidding, Lord. I'm not praying to Frodo. No, we're not. No, we're not. I digress. So, well, you, you answered some of the questions I had. Okay. So, I think I don't have too many. I, I'm going to ask a, what sounds like a simple question, but let me preface it before I give you a chance to answer. Yeah. My um, question, and I'm more talking about the current conflict that's happening in the okay. current war. Yeah. As a Christian, should I care about this war? And if so, why? And and, and to clarify before you answer. I think we should always care about the sanctity of life and not want innocent people to get murdered. So that part's obvious. I, right. I, I realize we should we should care about any time there's life being taken. But strictly as a believer in Christ, should I be drawn to this conflict and interested in it because Israel's involved when you know you've got things happening in the Sudan and Ukraine and Russia and and, right. and this is not new. I mean, it's happening all over the the world. Yeah. So with with what we've talked about in light of what we've shared about Israel, should I care about this? Mm. the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Israel or pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Um, I, I mean, I, I want to look up that reference. Um, so pardon me. Uh, boom. Psalm 122. Um, ooh, let's see. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord um, was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brother's companion's sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I think there's a I think there's a component that it matters that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the land the Lord chose that was holy enough that the Lord put it in the heart of Naaman to take some of it back with him because he wanted and believed it was ground that mattered. And so I don't think that's irrelevant. And I, I think it matters that we actually have an opinion. Um, we have an opinion on it. Because I think it's a cop-out to just say, well, it doesn't affect me. And I believe in Jesus, so uh, it doesn't matter. Right. And I, I think that's a cop-out because we have a Bible that was written there, that was inspired um, from that region uh, and, and written, of course, all over where the missionary journeys were taking place. But our Messiah... The eternal Son of God, of Jesus, who He said He is, He chose the Jewish people to birth a launch, birth and launch a movement to all nations scattered at Babel, hmm. and He chose a land that He gave to them to be a launching pad um, and a place that is considered to be holy ground, and um, and for a period of time, it's been handed over to the Gentiles to be trampled underfoot. The Bible says, but I, I but but there seems to be this promise in the Scriptures that God cares about that dirt. And he intends for it all to be, all of it to be redeemed, but he intends to redeem that land. So I think it does matter that we care. And I think the challenge for us is not getting too caught up in political machines, but seeing the nation as God sees the nation as a people of Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And ultimately, that's the church. The, you know, the big C Catholic, not like Roman Catholic, but the unified spiritual body of Christ made up of all believers from all nations, Jew and Gentile, um, that's ultimately going to be a place we inhabit yeah. in the new heaven and the new earth. So those political machines will be done away with. Jesus will conquer them. Rome, Revelation 19 is is going to happen. And and so therefore it does kind of matter that we care about that. And now get down into the weeds, the granular nature of what does that look like practically. That's tough. That's yeah. tough. Does that mean... Uh, we got militia people who go take up arms and fight for. Do, does there need to be a third group in there fighting? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Is, is that is there? You know, I, I don't want to like people are going to accuse me of being something if I go too far with that. But it makes you wonder, like, what is our? You know, do we just is are our weapons merely prayer? Maybe, probably. Um, I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. As people probably know. Um, but what is our role? In seeing the peace of Jerusalem take place, is it a, uh, is it is it a political movement? Is it is it a movement of prayer and fasting? Uh, is it a is is it a movement of um, peacemaking that looks like the church being present there in that world to broker peace between people? Probably, um, I think there is a component of that, and I'll get to I actually get to play a role in that in, in the in the coming months, um, but I think it's a complicated complicated thing and I, I think it's easy for people uh, to throw rocks at each other with differing opinions on it and I think there's a place there's a mystery to it and a place of humility we pray for the peace of Jerusalem we seek the peace of Jerusalem but we also seek the truth that um, justice needs to be done yeah uh, as the people of God God cares about that and, and how that comes I don't fully know and I don't pretend to know right so yeah, I'm not going to throw stones at anybody. 
No. But what a great transition to my takeaways today is oh. how should we as Christians respond to the, oh. co- to the conflict that is in Israel. Do I smell a segue? <laughs> it's pretty thick. Um, <laughs> you know, and you kind of covered a lot of what I have to say. So. I love the smell of segues in the afternoon. Those are a little sore, but um, you step it on them. Oh, great. Glad but I your could Your back's probably that. sore from carrying the conversation, too, so I get it. Uh, <laughs> so let's get into some takeaways today. Um, how, how should we respond? Number one, uh, just grieve and mourn with those who are hurting, you know, Good. The beatitudes say, you know, blessed are those who mourn, um, for they will be comforted. And I, I think that's just important. I think especially the you know, those who have been directly involved yeah. with what's happening. Number two, uh, is pray. Pray for the families who have lost loved ones to so many horrific attacks. Pray for those attacks to stop. Pray for the safety of those in Gaza who are simply trying to survive. Mm. Uh, pray for peace. You know, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Mm. Uh, peace may seem both obvious to pray for and unlikely to happen, but if we really believe in the power of God, I think we have to ask for it. Yeah. And we have to be amb- ambassadors of that peace in mm. some way, even if it's just committing to pray for that peace to happen. Mm. Um, number three, choose your words carefully, and not out of fear for speaking up, um, but because of the fact that all things religious or political these days are heightened by division and anger and dissension. So we need to let our words say in our posts we make on social media, seek to glorify God, unify his people, heal his land, comfort those who are hurting, uh, and let's speak the truth in love so that non-believers will taste and see that he is good. Uh, number four, uh, don't assume. Um, do some research, reach reach, uh, I can't talk, read trusted sources. And also remember that there are Palestinian Christians and there are Israeli Christians. Uh, both need our prayers as do those who don't know Jesus at all. Um, and so it's kind of that, you know, do we take sides and then just, but there are people, there are brothers and sisters who are by, not by choice, probably on both sides of this conflict. And, uh, we can't just assume that everyone on one side of a conflict is bad and everyone, that's on the right. other side is good. Thanks for bringing that up. I, that I'm I'm ashamed I, I failed to mention that, but there are there are a significant number of Palestinian evangelical believers who who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and have the same Holy Spirit, we are more related to those Palestinian Christians than we are a Jewish state who have rejected the Messiah. Right. And I think that is vital and important that we not forget that, that our allegiance lies to the kingdom of God. And for those Palestinian believers who have the Spirit of God, they deserve our kinship and unity. Um, and I know that's complicated for some people. That messes with some people's uh, eschatology. But thank you for bringing that up because there are there are a significant number of evangelical Palestinian believers. Yeah. Um, well, and then finally, I just I just thought it would be fitting to end from this little passage out of Isaiah 40 mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning where it says, um, comfort my people, or comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And So for anyone who might be listening in those areas, uh, we're praying for you. Uh, comfort is coming. 
and just know that he's going to reveal his glory and we're all going to see it together. That's good. Not separate. Amen. And there's comfort in that. That's awesome. Good stuff, man. Well, guys, we hope hope our information has been helpful to you. We hope that uh, you will um, find some of the things we've had to say at least directing uh, and helping you to at least begin to put your affections in one place or the other and hopefully a few resources. uh, You heard us uh, say a few things that will point you in the direction of some decent resources. Man, if you have any other questions about that, please hit us up. Uh, if you got a technical hard question about Israel and the current conflict, hit us up with it. Send it to theologythird at gmail.com, and that will be a fantastic opportunity for us to address it because we can't even think of all the questions, but we certainly can try to address them. So thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for your giving. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for the five-star ratings, all the good stuff. We appreciate it. It's a joy to do this, and we hope you'll listen uh, to this one. Hope you'll listen next time. And until that next time, y'all have a great day. See ya. Out. <laughs>